So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, concentrating on verse 25 this morning, but reading verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive and apply it especially to us this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're, we're getting in deep here. The, these are deep very relevant um, uh, context, uh, very relevant woes, very well relevant blessings, um, where every Christian lives, and every actually everyone on earth is affected by these, but they just don't know it. Um, we do know it, and that's why we need to look at both the wheel and the woe, as Jesus has given them to us here. Pray that as we, as we go through these two woes this morning, that we will understand the spiritual woe, the idolatry that exists actually underneath each one of them, and that we won't just simply apply this to the fallen world, but that we will see how it is relevant to each and every one of us giving you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we've made our way through the Luke's rendition of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is a very concise one compared to Matthew, um, I have made the point several times that there's a correlation between Moses communing with God on Mount Sinai, receiving the law, coming and bringing the law down and sharing it with the people of God. Jesus now communing with his Father on the mountain, coming down the mountain, and to, to expand or expand expound, exposit the law in a New Testament context to the people of God. Um, There have been some associations and there have been differences and we have pointed those out. Um, There's another association this morning, particularly with the the passage that we're getting ready to look at, the 25th verse, that I wanted to bring to your attention. As you remember, when Moses was up on top of the mountain, the Lord gave him the Ten Commandments. And the first two commandments we studied um, earlier, it was to uh, have no other gods before me and have no idols. Well, while that's happening on the top of the mountain, down below, they're making an idol. They've already gone astray. And so, um, uh, in particular, I want to kind of bring out what they were doing. Besides making the idol, here's what Aaron said. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow we shall, shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And what we're seeing there actually is them falling into not only idolatry, but what we're going to call this morning hedonistic lifestyle. They're beginning to play. That word just means there, 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 were, there was a raucous kind of play going on and a lot of laughing and a lot of filling up. And that's the way it's going to connect with us today. But notice what happens next. You know, in a human sense, Moses convinces God not to destroy the people. We know that God doesn't get convinced of anything, but in a human sense, an anthropomorphic sense, that's what happens up there. And God's wrath is abated, so he doesn't destroy them. But when Moses comes down the mountain, his wrath flares up because Joshua met him and said, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. But Moses says, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. 
And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And of course we know he drew a line in the sand and said, who's on the Lord's side? And those who did not make that choice perished on that day. There was immediate severe judgment for 3,000 people who died on that particular day. Now, here Jesus brings the law down. He talks about all these blessings, but he tells us that, that don't forget the judgment because it's eschatological in nature. In other words, there's a situation right now that you're in, but don't forget that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be judgment and the, and the same kind of, of woes to, uh, that happened to the children of Israel back in um, that, that scene that I just read from Exodus. So keep that in mind that Jesus is again following very closely what Moses did and making sure that we remember, and I also want you to remember what I read you in verse 20. I'll bring it back to your attention later on, that Jesus fixed his gaze on his disciples. So he is telling this to his disciples, his followers, his newly appointed apostles. And we want to make sure that we understand how this applies, not just to the unsaved world, but remember that the children of Israel were the people of God, how it applies to us and the church. Now, as we have gone through these beatitudes, we, we know that Luke gives us a very concise version of Matthew. Matthew has eight, Luke has only four. But Luke has really focused on the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what he's been doing all through this part of his book. And Jesus gives us these, these blessings that even though there is a physical analogy to them, underneath there is that spiritual meaning. That's the reason and we've made a correlation with, with what Matthew says. When Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, he's not talking about poor uh, materially or financially as much as he is poor spiritually, a beggar, recognizing that you need someone to save you. You cannot possibly save yourself and pull yourself out of that kind of poverty. So blessed are you if you know it and you turn to God for your salvation. And then we saw, blessed are you if you are hungry now, not just for food, but for the things of God. If you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, that's a sign of redemption. Only the redeemed heart follows and desires and hungers after God. Because otherwise, no one searches after God, as Paul said in Romans. Everyone has gone astray. So that's a sign. The blessing is in the sign that you hunger after the right things. You fill your things with yourself with the right thing. You will be filled and satisfied in the not yet. Same thing with weeping. Blessed are you who weep now because you're going to laugh in the not yet. You're going to laugh because of the blessing spiritually. Right now, what do you weep over? You weep over your sins. We're mortified over our sins and the, and the same thing applies those who have not been redeemed don't aren't mortified they may be sorry they got caught but they are not mortified because they have sinned against the God who they love and then finally we saw that blessing of blessed are you if everyone hates you which is like really upside down as far as the world is concerned but not as far as the kingdom is concerned because it's another sign that you are following the Lord that you are bearing fruit because the world hates that they're not really hating you they're hating Jesus and all the things of God. Well, then he gives us four woes. Matthew doesn't do this. Luke does because, uh, and I just explained how it fits in with that Sinai story. But nonetheless, four woes, each one of them corresponding to the wheel or the blessing that went before it. Last week, we looked at the first one. Woe to you if you're rich because you have received your consolation. Now, even though the analogy is physical wealth, underneath that was the fact that when it becomes an idol, when wealth is, is what you pursue your entire life, when it is where you put your faith and your trust and think that wealth is going to save you, that is when it becomes spiritual in nature. But it wasn't just 
physical wealth that we talked about. It was that spiritual wealth as well. When you think you're rich in righteousness, once again, you don't need a Savior. And so blessed are you if you are poor spiritually, and woe to you if you think your own righteousness is going to stand before a holy God. And so we're going to see that each one of these woes corresponds to its, its, its wheel or its blessing. Now, with all of that said, we're going to go into the second and the third woes today. But let's kind of pick up a few other things that, that we learned. First of all, that word woe, okay? That, that word woe, remember it's an onomatopoeic? Well, thank you. Onomatopoeic word that, uh, that, that we learned. And I'm so glad that you did learn it because I figured that you would all go home and prepare to use that in everyday speech and just really wow everybody. So you've shown me that you know that word, and I'm, I'm very proud of you. It's just simply a word that sounds like what it means, like buzz or murmur. And in the Greek, remember, that's the word ouai. I mean, that just feels, or, or oue, it just feels woeful in the way that it says. Or the Hebrew equivalent, oi, you know, oi vey was uh, that woe is me, woe is me again. That, that's basically what that phrase means. So it's an onomatopoeic word, but it, it's, it's a little bit more than just that. It, it's an interjection that uh, it expresses a feeling or an emotion, but because they're being used in conjunction with the blessed Remember, the blessed, that was a state of being verb. Now, this isn't a verb, but it points to a state of being. However, the state of being that is being warned against is a state of being that will exist in the not yet. So, a situation in the current is being is, is saying woe to that because the real woe is going to come when there is the eschatological aspect of this comes into play. So basically the woe, and we use, I gave you several different woes from the Old Testament last week. Woe is being used in a very prophetic warning of eschatological judgment. Um, in other words, let me just read you from Isaiah because I read you a lot last week. But Isaiah says, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Constantly warning those who are living the kind of life that is going to place them in judgment, already has placed them in judgment, but that judgment, of course, is going to come at the end of time. Now, there was one other aspect of this word that I don't think I emphasized enough last week, and I want to make sure I do so this week. In the New Testament, the word woe very much carries with it the idea of compassion, of a broken heart behind the woe. It is definitely not the goody-goody, you're going to get what you deserve kind of woe. It is a broken heart. Jesus wailed when he came to Jerusalem the last time. He wailed because of those who rejected him, hated him, and were about to murder him. His heart was broken for them. Paul said he would even exchange his own salvation if that would mean that his brothers would accept it. That kind of angst, that kind of pathos is something that we want to make sure we see in these woes. No one's happy about this. And I apologize to you last week about bringing this kind of hard-hitting negative message, but nobody's happy about this woe. But if it, what Jesus is doing is warning us, you don't want the consequences of the life you're living. So you need to pay attention to it, not only outside the church, but inside it as well. Now, one last thing before we start talking about the second and third woe. And, and that was the underlying idea of, uh, of idolatry. Um, it was easier, perhaps, to see when we talked about money and wealth because that so often becomes an idol that people put their trust in. But each and every one of these are 
idols. An idol is anything that you let get between you and God. Anything that you fixate on. Anything that you give yourself to. Anything that you sell your soul to so that you're not turning to God who is the only one who can save you. He's the one with the plan of redemption through his son Jesus Christ. Nothing else is going to save you. So idols are worthless. And underneath each one of these woes is the the, the warning against investing in idols. And of course, Calvin says, we are all idol factories. So don't exclude yourself or excuse yourself from this because we're constantly creating these idols and putting our trust in them. Okay, with that said, let's, let's go on and take a look at these two um, woes. Woe to you who are filled now and woe to you who laugh. Well, as we did last week, I need, before we even get into them, let, let's, let's talk about what Jesus isn't saying, about what he doesn't mean, all right? And I think all of you foodies out there are sitting here saying, what? This means I can't enjoy food. Uh, no, of course not. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't be filled with food. And so what I've done, I did it with wealth. I'm going to do it with um, uh, you know, being popular next week. Um, I just want to bring out some scriptural evidence of why Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to be filled. In fact, we are commanded through the hospitality of the Old Testament that if you see someone who is empty, now we're talking about physically food now, if you see someone who is empty, you need to fill them. I mean, here's what Deuteronomy says. Let the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So, so it's, it's not this, there's not a sinfulness in being full. In fact, Jesus enjoyed eating. Jesus liked to eat. Remember that? You know, they're fasting, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting, and Jesus is eating with a bunch of sinners at Matthew's house. And in fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Well, obviously, if they're going to call him a glutton, they're going to, Jesus didn't mind eating. And he probably ate and filled himself up like, like we do or normally do when we eat a meal. In fact, one of the great miracles that Jesus worked was the feeding of the 5,000 and later on the feeding of the 4,000. Well, he didn't just feed them a little. That was part of the miracle, part of what he did. He, fill, he, fill, he fed them till they were filled. John 6 says it this way, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So bottom line is, from scripture, is not a sin to eat. It's not a sin to eat three meals a day. It's not a sin to like your food, and it's not a sin to fill yourself up. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We'll get to what he is talking about in a moment. But let's talk about laughing. Is it a sin to laugh? <laughs> Woe to you who laugh now. I mean, I could easily be interpreted that way. But once again, that is not the context in, what, in which it is meant. In fact, we just studied that. Remember? Remember the command to be joyful, rejoice, and leap for joy? I mean, that was an imperative. And then remember the blessing. Blessed are you who weep for what? You will laugh. So there, there, there's no harm in laughing. In fact, God laughs several places in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you remember when we talked about that word laugh, we talk about it can mean several different things. And, and when God laughs, usually he's laughing in derision, if you will. From Psalm 2, it goes like this. Um, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Um, but the Lord laughs. God laughs. And, and we just read from Ecclesiastes and Solomon, who is supposed to have this great wisdom, he says that there are certain occasions when laughter is the only appropriate thing to do. Remember, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn, and a time to dance. That sometimes the only appropriate thing you can do is to laugh and to dance. And quite often, laughing and joy and mirth is considered to be a blessing, particularly when God 
reverses the judgment. Like, for instance, Jeremiah 33. Thus says the Lord, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. So, once again, bottom line, we are not called to walk around with scowls on our face, you know, the frozen chosen type of just really somber all the time. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a hedonistic kind of laughter. Now, I'm going to use that word quite a bit this morning. In fact, I'm lumping these two woes into the sort of umbrella of hedonism. When you, you look in the dictionary to define hedonism, it, it is a word that means the relentless pursuit of pleasure. And it can be any kind of pleasure. It's the worldly pleasure. It's not, you know, John Piper uses the word uh, of Christian hedonism, but he's talking about God's pleasure. It's not, this is the worldly pleasure that people pursue with abandon and relentlessly. That's kind of at the base of both of these. Now, as we go through these, we're going to see sort of a twofold type of woe. There's going to be a woe about the analogy itself. We're going to see a woe that would encompass gluttony and the excessives of of many different things. And then we're going to see a woe that focuses on the triviality uh, of the the inability to be serious about anything. That kind of a hedonistic laughter that's coming from that kind of a lifestyle. So on the one hand, we have that idea, but then for each of them, I'm going to go back and look at the wheel and show how this is the reverse of that spiritually focused wheel, and the meanings are slightly differently, so we we will take that one at a time. All right, let's talk about, first of all, the idol of and the excess of gluttony. Woe to you who are are filled now, filled up now. Now, we've already seen that it's not a sin for you to enjoy food. It's not a sin to like to cook or to like to eat. That's not the kind of sin that he's talking about. But the analogy is of a gluttonous person. And just imagine this. Let's form an image in our minds of what I mean when I talk about someone that fits the analogy that is gluttonous. Imagine a gluttonous king who is totally obese, huge guy, sitting on a pillow in front of the most sumptuous table. Every kind of dish you can imagine is there. And there's only one person at a table that could have fed 15 to 20 people. And that is this king. He's got a a goblet of, of wine in one hand. And when he drinks it, it just spills all over him down his shirt, his rolls of fat coming out of that shirt. And the other hand, he's got a leg of lamb or something. And he's stuffing it in his mouth and he's eating it like a voraciously hungry animal. And that entire table, he's just grabbing this and grabbing that and eating and filling himself. When he can't eat anymore, he goes to sleep, he wakes up and he starts it all over again. That's what, that's the image I want you to see of a glutton. There's the idea in that image also That this is, you know, last week we talked about the wealthy and we talked about the rich and that there was not really a sin in that unless your wealth became your God and became your idol. Well, here the idea of wealth is sort of intertwined with this because the poorest people cannot afford to be gluttonous. I mean, they're just trying to, 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 to keep, stay alive, much less stuffing themselves like this. And in fact... There's the idea in the, this excess of the being filled that you are being filled or this king is being filled at the expense of the poor, at the expense of others. Now, once again, last week, we looked at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and that really applies uh, again this morning. This is how that story starts out. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich man has everything he needs, great clothes, apparently a beautiful place to live, and sumptuous meals every single day. $100, a plate, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this poor man would give anything just to have the crumbs that fell from his table. And so therefore, there's the idea in this excess that we're talking about and the woe towards those who are stuffing themselves eight, nine, ten times a day and not paying any attention to those around them who might be suffering because they don't have enough for a single good meal a day. And that applies for people who would do that. That applies for the church. If the church becomes so focused on itself that it can't see the world around it, and it also would be a nation, a country, that is so extravagant and opulent in its living that it doesn't pay attention to the poverty that exists just an hour or two off of its shores. And so therefore, this is something that is extremely relevant. Now, the analogy is an analogy about food, obviously. The, the hungry, uh, uh, that's the stomach telling the brain that it's empty. So it's an analogy about food. But when we talk about hedonism and the excesses of hedonism and a hedonistic lifestyle... We're not going to limit it to food because that's just an example. There are, anything can become an idol and anything done to that excess to the, at the expense of others can fit into this hedonistic umbrella. Obviously things like drunkenness or drugs or sex or pornography. All of those could be seen as, as part of this hedonistic lifestyle, things that people fill themselves with. But it can also be things that you just don't normally think about, like social media. People who are just completely consumed with social media or travel, especially this sort of adrenaline pumping kind of travel that people do. And you see some horror stories because they're trying to do a YouTube video or an Instagram and they're walking along the tiny parapet on the side of a mountain and the girl falls off and falls a thousand feet to her death. Also, they can get some kind of an adrenaline um, rush as part of it. This is huge. Or whether or not you collect things, whether it's houses or cars or jewelry or clothes or anything that can completely consume you. Most of you know I used to sail in the old days before that was what Sunday was for, was sailing. Well, I hung out with a bunch of guys that sailing was their life. I mean, they thought about it all day long, all week long. They couldn't wait to get out on the water. They're thinking about their tackle. They're thinking about their boats. They gave their souls to sailing. And in that sense, even though there's nothing wrong with sailing, it's the excess that becomes an idol that stands between you and God. And that is the basis of what this, this um, self-indulgence um, is, this sort of uh, um, um, excess overdoing and doing it all for yourself at the expense of, of others. Now, again, that's a focus on the, the sort of the physical analogy, the, the one that speaks of, of the food itself, of a glutton. But if we put this into the perspective of the wheel, then we need to look at it in a slightly different way. If you remember, the wheel was, blessed are you who are hungry now, because you're hungering and thirsting after the things of God, and you will be filled in the not yet. Well, this is the exact reverse of that. And by the way, I want you to see that. I want you to see the reversal of the formula that is used here. In the wheels, it was, you've got a situation that may not be the best situation right now, but you're being faithful and your reward will be in the not yet. Well, now it's exactly the opposite. You've got what you want now. 
You have your money now. You have wealth now. And so you have received your consolation. You're not going to get it where you're going. It's the exact reverse. It is what you are doing now that is constituting the woe that the woe is warning you against will occur in the future. And so, therefore, the way that Jesus words this is, woe to you who are filled now. What are the, woe to you who are filled? Well, filled with what? I, I, I don't think that what Jesus is doing is warning a local glutton that you're going to lose your kingdom and your ability and there's going to be trouble here on this earth. I, I, I think what he is doing is saying, woe to you if you are filled with anything other than God. Because you see, that's what the wheel was. Blessed are you who are filled and hungry for God and his relationship and reconciliation and righteousness with God. Woe to you if you have filled yourself with an idol. Woe to you if what your focus is, of where you're looking for your salvation from, whether your redemption comes from something of this world. Woe to you if you're so filled with this world that there's no room in you for God. Because whatever you have filled yourself with, Whatever you have focused on, whatever you have sold your soul for, that will not save you. Only God will save you. Only God through his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is the very essence of the woe. If you fill yourself with something else, the things of this world, it is so easy, whether or not you are a believer or an unbeliever, it is easy to fill yourself, your soul, with the things of this world. And the more you are filled with the things of the world, the less room there is going to be for the spirit that belongs there. And so therefore, woe to you if you fill yourself with the things of the world because you will be hungry. Now, once again, that word just means physical hunger. It's a word that means your stomach telling your mind that I'm empty, I need food. But how are we to approach that or to view that in this, in this eschatological sense? Do, do you think, obviously, the, 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 the blessing was, blessed are you who are hungry now for God's righteousness. Do you think that what Jesus is saying is, you know, woe to you now because you will hunger for God then and it'll be too late? Well, unfortunately, not. That's not, that's, that, that's not the way it's going to be because, again, we learned that the only reason people hunger after God is because their souls have been redeemed. They've been regenerated. God has taken out the soul that is made of stone and put one of flesh in. And that's where the Holy Spirit lives. And those who are going to hell never get redeemed. In fact, Jesus put it this way harshly, but he put it straightforward in, in, in Mark. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Never, ever, for an eternity. He goes on and he says, for he is guilty of an eternal sin. So in other words, Jesus is not saying that when this person dies who's rejected him throughout their entire life and filled themselves with the hedonistic lifestyle, hedonistic pursuits, that all of a sudden when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ that they're going to drop to their knees, to their knees profess Christ as Savior, repent from their sins and desire and hunger after God. That'll never happen. All he will hunger after or she will hunger after are the things that they have lost. The things that they gave their souls to. The things that they thought were so important that they filled themselves with. All of that's going to be gone. Once again, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember what the rich man said? He saw Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. So he cries out to Abraham and says, Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. It will never be... And I think this is a misconception that when the judgment happens, that people will repent of their sins and recognize what they have done wrong. If the devil is any indication of the way his children will act, that is not going to happen. Because in Revelation 12, when the devil was thrown out of heaven, we read, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows 
that his time is short. short. The devil will never, ever, I mean, he'll be on his way to the lake of fire. He will be cursing and hating God all the way down and still believing in his maniacal delusion that he could replace God. He'll never, ever repent. And those who stand before God in judgment, who have rejected Christ and God's plan of redemption, will not repent. Because repentance comes from a redeemed heart. And that heart is under judgment rather than under redemption. So I know that that is difficult and that is harsh, but that's the hunger that Jesus is talking about. Well, on to the third. The... Mindless pursuit of sensual pleasure. That's what I believe the laughing is. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will weep and mourn. And, and, and again, we've, we've made it clear it's not laughing in general that is, is in view here. It is the kind of laughing, if you just think about the, the prodigal son, You remember, and he squandered his living, and he took it, and we read that he went into a far country, and on reckless living, he squandered it. Well, along with that reckless living, there was an awful lot of laughter, good times, good time laughter, good times buddies. Of course, they all disappeared as soon as the money disappeared. But there was that same kind of riotous laughter and, and yelling that Moses heard in the camp as he brought that Ten Commandments back down and such judgment was placed on them. It, it is that kind of a mindless pursuit. There's, there's some great analogies out there. I think, again, we started out talking about Pilgrim's Progress here, and I think, again, about Vanity Fair because that's what they do. It's a constant fair. They're just pursuing um, entertainment and recreation. It's just a party from day of start to day in. There's a movie that comes to my mind, and you guys know that Kay and I love these old black and white movies. I know you don't watch them, so let me explain one. It's called Midnight, 1939 movie with Claudette Colbert and Donna Miche, you know? I mean, if you know Don, the only place you know Don Amiche is from like Cocoon or the later movies. You don't realize he was a heartthrob. I mean, he was a leading man when he was young, dark and handsome. Um, well, he's the leading man in that uh, movie. Now, Claudette Colbert is a gold digger, okay? She is interested. She's just a chorus girl, but she is interested in finding herself a rich husband. So she weasels her way into this trivial, rich society that all they do is play. And in one of the scenes, she's being introduced to the various playboys that are part of this society. And one of those playboys is asked to describe himself. How would you describe yourself? And the way he described himself, I think, is most interesting. He said, I'm a telephone worshiper. And everyone kind of looked at him like, what? What do you mean a telephone worshiper? And he said, my telephone is my God and I pray to my God every single day that it will ring and that there will be someone on the other side with champagne and caviar and something fun to do. Some kind of worthless, trivial pursuit. And that's the kind of laughter that I think that Jesus is talking about here. A laughter that is the laughter of, an, of a hedonistic lifestyle. A laughter that does not think at all about tomorrow. It is a laughter that lives in the here and now. It doesn't think about what's going to happen. It doesn't think about God. It doesn't think about their own mortality. It doesn't think about any of these things. It is interested in having a good time and partying right now. Jesus tells a great story about this. Luke is so full of these great stories. We're just going to have a great time as we make our way through this. But this is a man preparing for his retirement. Okay, kind of put it in a more modern context, and he's prosperous, and he fills, in fact, he's filled his barns, so he builds bigger barns, and he fills them all up. And one of my favorite quotes from scriptures, he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I think that that captures the the idea that's here. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, Isaiah makes the the kind of devil-may-care, I'm only interested in today statement. In other words, the children of Israel are about to get overwhelmed by the Assyrians and they're marching and there's going to be sieges and there's big trouble on the horizon and yet they're just living like there's no tomorrow. That's when he says, uh, um, uh, Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, saying, Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's that, I could care less about what happens tomorrow. Paul even picks that up in his letter to the Corinthians. And he says, listen, let me tell you something. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then let's eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we die. In other words, nothing matters if there is not the resurrection. But I think that even that tomorrow we die idea doesn't... Uh, it gets so much involved in what is being said here because I think there's almost a denial uh, of tomorrow. There's almost a denial of death. There's just this feeling of immortality that drives this kind of a mindset that right now today and having fun and partying and, and being around in a raucous setting or a hedonistic kind of lifestyle, that's all that matters. And, you know, I'm going to live forever. No thought about God, no thought about how that's going to turn out. Now, of course, that's the reason we read Ecclesiastes earlier. And we read it responsively. And Solomon telling us that all of these endeavors, none of them actually are worthwhile. Let me just read you selectively a couple of them just to bring it back to your mind. Solomon said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said, of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, All was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, that's the wisdom of Solomon telling you that a a, a life of laughter or or a life where laughter becomes the focus. And, And again, brothers and sisters, it doesn't have to be the trivial rich sitting around doing worthless games. It could be a focus on anything that is the pursuit of pleasure. That's what hedonism means. And, and, and there are people who pursue sports that way, who pursue entertainment that way, who pursue recreation that way. There's all kinds of different things that you can pursue that if you do it to excess and to the exclusion of God, that it falls under the woe that Jesus is saying here. But once again, I want to put it into the context of the wheel, because specifically the wheel was a blessedness for those who weep and are mortified over their sins. Well, the one who here now laughs is laughing in their sins, laughing at their sins, laughing because of their sins. God's Decrees mean nothing to them. They could care less what God says. They've redefined. They have sinned the sin of the garden. They have redefined good and evil. And not only do they do it, but they lead other people to do it. Of course, Paul in his great statement from Romans, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he lists all of those egregious sins that come when God turns a culture over to its debased mind and then ends with this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So that's the, that's the laughing in the here and now. Well, what about the weeping in the morning and the not yet? 
Well, the weeping in the morning, by the way, notice that Jesus adds the concept of mourning, which they're almost synonymous in the way that they're used, but the mourning adds the idea of losing something. You mourn over something you've lost or you mourn over something that you have a situation. And that, again, grabs the meaning here. They're not mourning over their sins, folks. They're not weeping over their sins. They may weep because they have been condemned, because they have been judged, because they are facing an eternity of misery and damnation. That is what they mourn and they weep over because they've lost the life that they sold their souls for. And now there is nothing ahead of them except this kind of, of, of loss and, and mourning. Once again, it is not that there's going to be repentance. It is going to be a continued anger and hatred towards the one who condemned you, but not a changing of your ways. Well... As I told you at the beginning, as we look to apply this, brothers and sisters, this is huge. I mean, these are huge. I could have easily divided these, and and we could talk a month about uh, each one of them, especially when we start talking about the applications. I mean, I, I could, first of all, as we've gone through these, it has been decidedly from a woe to the recalcitrant sinner. That compassionate woe that you must turn from your evil ways. You must repent. You must turn to that which is important, which is the the redemption won by Jesus Christ on the cross. Only then can you be saved. Now, that is one way of looking at this. But as I said earlier, when Jesus, back in the 20th verse, when Jesus starts this, his gaze is fixed on his disciples. So we know that there, that there's a meaning here for just the church. And, and, and that's what I want to focus on. And I'm even going to get more specific than that because we can't possibly cover all the applications. I mean, you might think that now's the time I'm going to start lambasting carnal Christianity, right? Or the so-called, there's no such thing as carnal Christianity, but the carnality of the world that's being brought into the church and people who think they can go on sinning even though they have in one way confessed Jesus as Savior. You you know, I'm not going to even deal with that. I want to deal with you and and with me. And in doing that, I'm going to make some people mad this morning. In both of the ways that I I ask you to look at this and look at yourself and look at what Jesus is telling us. But this is serious business, folks. This is a woe. And it's not just a woe at the unsaved world. It's a woe for us. It's a woe for what happens to the church and to the kingdom and to your soul in this world and in your own sanctification if you don't pay attention to the situation that you live in. Woe to you who are filled now. Well, what, what, what is it that we're filled with? What is it that Jesus is woeing us about or warning us about not to be filled with? Well, we've already established that. Don't be filled with the world. That's not the way that your redeemed heart, your regenerated soul was designed. Your regenerated soul, Brother Clayton read it to you earlier, was designed not to be drunk and debauchery, but rather to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what your soul has been designed to do, to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, to be filled with the things of God, to hunger and thirst after His righteousness, after reconciliation and relationship with Him, to walk in His paths, to try as best as you can to emulate the life of Jesus Christ. That is what your redeemed soul has been redeemed for. So what on earth are you doing filling it with the world? And you don't even have to do it Actively, you see, that's, that's part of the danger that we run. It's, it, it's a warning against the indolent of ignoring that you have an enemy that walks alongside of you with a bucket of mud that is interested in doing nothing else but filling your redeemed soul full of that mud. We talked about the fact that if we are really going to be joyful in this world, we're going to have to get in touch with our redeemed selves. We're going to have to get down, get the mud, get the muck off of it so we can get to our redeemed self who never forgets that you were saved from and never forgets where you're going and therefore is constantly joyful. 
Well, it's the same thing if we're going to understand the real application of this as far as we are concerned. I've used this example many times. It's it's almost like a a beaker, you know, like a regular old beaker that you would have in a laboratory setting or something that's made of glass. And, and, And it's designed to be filled with crystal clear water. Except what you do is you pack it full of mud. I mean, you fill it up to where there's no more room in that thing for anything but mud. Every molecule is taken up with mud, and then you cake it so it's just hard as a brick bat, and then you try to pour water on it. Water just pours right out. And, 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 and I, I realize that that represents the unsaved because there's no room in that soul at all for God. But even those of us who know better even those of us who love the Lord and want to serve Him, we, we go to sleep. We forget that there's an enemy. We forget that there is someone who's walking beside us with that mud and wants to do nothing else but fill our redeemed hearts with it. And the degree to which your heart is filled with the world is the degree to which you will lose the spirit when you leave this place. So many people come to church. And while they're here, they, they feel the Spirit. The Lord promises that He's here. Every single time we gather in His name, the Holy Spirit is here. And you go to church and you have this great feeling. And you, and, and, and you walk out those doors and you're not even to your car until you've lost it. And you don't hold it during the week and you wonder what happens. And, and you lament the fact that you don't have that, that, that walking with the Spirit every moment of every day. That the water or the Spirit or the, the water of life has just rolled right out of your beaker. Because it's so filled with the world. Woe to the church that fills itself with the world, brothers and sisters. And I wish I had time now to go into not just the individual, the problems of us individually, but churches who recognize that so many people are walking around with their beakers filled with mud and they cater to them and say, it's oh, it's okay, we'll just manufacture the Spirit. That's the bane of modern Christianity. But I want to go on to the next one because it just kind of flows from it. And that is, woe to those who laugh. Woe to those who are filling their lives with trivial pursuits and they're not pursuing the things of God. And once again, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go into the ridiculous circus shows that some churches call worship, where they're, they're giving sweepstakes to try to get people to come in. Where people run around the sanctuary barking like dogs and say it's the Holy Spirit. Where ninja angels come out of the ceiling on ropes or pastors come on zip lines to, to take their pulpit. I mean, they, they, they've already diminished everything that is important and godly in worship and stripped it out of that whole model. But I'm not even going to go there. I want to talk about us. I want to talk about you. And I want to talk about a problem that we have right here in this church and in every Reformed church and every serious church that I see around us right now. And the best way I can describe it is the pursuit of shallowness or the insistence upon shallowness. By far, the number one complaint that I have gotten every year since I have been here is that you're too deep, you're too long. You use words that are too big. And that concept is too much. I didn't come to church to think. I came to church to feel. Okay? I came to church to feel good. And you're asking me to think. And I don't want to think. And I don't want to consider anything that's difficult. I don't want to go deeper. I just want the surface stuff. Just give me the milk and I'll be perfectly happy. That is so dangerous, brothers and sisters. Because you know what it does? It starts a decline in the church. And you don't want to be where that decline leads us. I I, want to give you some homework. And and be real interested to hear from you how how this uh, works out for you. Because again, people complain at me all the time. You know, it's just your sermons are too long. They're too technical. They're too wordy. Uh, there are too many concepts, too many principles. And okay, that's fine. But rather than, 
elevating, rather than achieving, rather than striving for something that is bigger and greater and something that you may not understand, you want to just dumb it down and bring it to something that you're comfortable with so that you can feel good when you leave. Well, I want you to do this. Two of the greatest preachers that have existed in the last several hundred years were George Whitfield in the 18th century and um, Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. Okay, Charles Spurgeon just maybe 120 years ago or 150 years ago. But nonetheless, uh, I want you to go home and pull up one of their sermons. Chances are you're going to have more, uh, an easier time with Charles Spurgeon than George Whitfield because not many of his sermons were, were kept. But the reason I pull those two men out is because they were lambasted. They were roasted. They were drug over the coals by their contemporaries and the press of the day because they had, according to their accusers, they had dumbed the Bible down. They had brought the high and lofty concepts of theology and made them so simple using such simple language and such straightforward um, uh, thoughts that even the common people could understand it. And of course, for that reason, both men were hugely popular. Both men had magnificent ministries. Um, George Whitfield, probably as much as anyone else, responsible for the Great Awakening, both in England and here. An extraordinary preacher. Of course, Charles Spurgeon, legendary as far as his preaching is concerned. So I challenge you to go get one of the sermons. Just pick one at random. There's hundreds online. Just one sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached to the common people of his day. Chances are you're going to need two books with you. You're going to need a dictionary because half the words they use is you're not going to understand. Because our vocabulary has fallen. We don't understand the words that he used. And secondly, you're more than likely going to need a theological dictionary because he assumes that his congregation knows the basics of theology, knows basic principles. He assumes things and just makes a reference to them and that most people today don't have any clue what he's talking about. During the pandemic, we read the Heidelberg Catechism every week. Remember that? For some of you, it was the first time you'd ever been exposed to the Heidelberg Catechism. And yet, that catechism was written for children pre-teenager children to learn verbatim and recite before they would be granted um, access to the Lord's table. And yet, we used to try to just get people to memorize the first, and there was such resistance to that, we dropped that. I think there's like, what, 90 of them or something, 52 of them, 52 different um, lessons. But here's my point. Here's my point. The danger of this is, is that, What is down that road? If you look over 150 years and you see the difference between the way people were preaching them and the way they preach now and the basic understanding of the congregations now, you see that there's this slope that goes down and we're on that slope. We have not plateaued. And so where we are headed for, brothers and sisters, is biblical illiteracy within the church. We are headed to where people who come to church every week are not fed with the Word of God, and so therefore they don't know the Word of God. And what happens when you don't know the Word of God? You lose the ability to weep over your sins, is what happens. You lose the ability to even know what God has called you to do. And you don't weep anymore. And we don't weep in the church. Sin's a dirty word. We don't talk about sin anymore. We only want to talk about good things. Just the fluff. Just the grace. And we don't even know anymore what we are doing that we should feel mortified over. Because we are biblically illiterate. Because we are not being taught. Once again, brothers and sisters, I will read to you from Paul what happens to a society that does that. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And I believe that that is exactly what we see in this country right now. God has given us up to a debased mind. So therefore, this is not something that's mildly important. 
This is hugely important. And the fourth woe is also important next week when we start talking about prophets and false prophets and word and being popular in the pulpit and that whole approach. We have to turn this around. And so it starts here amongst us. And the reason and the the solution, I think, is, is exactly what we talked about last week. And I'll leave you with this. Exactly what Jesus said to the so-called rich young ruler as he sent him away. Because he knew he had an idol. He said, destroy your idol and then follow me. He didn't because he didn't know he had an idol or he didn't repent of that idol. So here's what we do, brothers and sisters. We, first of all, we repent. We repent of what we have become, of what we have allowed to happen to us. We repent of filling ourselves with the world and we repent of losing the ability to cry and weep over our sins. And then, after we've destroyed those idols, then we follow Jesus. Because brothers and sisters, that's what kingdom dwellers do. That's what we are called to do. He's our model. He's our goal. He's our guide. He's unattainable. But he is the one that we are called to pursue. So repent. Get rid of the idols of a worldliness and a silliness and a shallowness. And follow Jesus. Because if you are following him in the word and in a serious sense, You will follow him wherever he leads you. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we do ask for forgiveness because there's not a single person here, some degree or another, that we do not allow our redeemed selves, our souls that that you died for and, and, and paid such a price for, that we allow that to be filled by, with the world, either actively or simply by not striving, not fighting the fight constantly over and over and day in and day out to fight the fight for righteousness, for Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray that you will give us the strength and the direction to heed not the woes that are men of the unbelieving world, but the woes that are directly attributable to us that we would indeed be the church you have called us to be. In Christ's name we pray, amen.